Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, it was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. Support for the California Report comes from the Wesley Foundation improving the lives of California's children and youth at risk. The California Endowment, working to achieve health and justice for all. Learn more at calendow.org. And Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose family foundation advances the wiser use of energy and natural resources on a planet where everything is connected, on the web at theschmidt.org. On today's California Report magazine, stories of passing things down through the generations, from a 100-year-old Japanese-American business that survived internment to bicycles abandoned after Burning Man. A lot of stripping of fur and psychedelic-colored duct tape and things like that. They were at Burning Man, so the desert kind of did a number on some of them. Plus, a new exhibit inspires Californians to stand up to bigotry and hate. You don't have to listen to what people say. Like if they say, you're ugly or you don't belong here. You can't just be a bystander. You have to do something. I'm Sasha Coca, and this is the California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. Remember those tiny words on a penny in Latin? Well, Governor Jerry Brown says these days they're more relevant than ever. We have it right in our motto, E Pluribus Unum, but we have a lot more pluribus than we have unum. Brown was speaking at the California Museum in Sacramento this week about finding common ground, especially at a time when we're witnessing a new wave of white supremacy and bigotry. We've got to find those common experiences that uh, enable people to realize that they're human in a way that other people that look very different are also human. So when we look at Charlottesville and the white supremacists, uh, we know uh, that's not the path. The museum held the reception to celebrate a new exhibit called the Unity Center, and it's opening the same weekend far-right rallies in Northern California are expected to draw white nationalists. That's an eerie coincidence because the idea for the center began nearly 20 years ago when Sacramento was reeling from a string of hate crimes linked to white supremacists. On this night, 
Three Sacramento area synagogues were firebombed within a 45-minute period. It was the worst series of anti-Semitic attacks in Sacramento history. In 1999, it was known as the Summer of Hate. That's the California Museum's director, Amanda Meeker. She says a gay couple was also murdered that summer, and a women's clinic was firebombed. Out of that arose a desire to do something to combat the sources of hate. Well, you know, celebrating our individuality, also show what we have in common and be a place where we can all learn about each other. She walks me through the exhibit. On the walls, giant photographs of Californians, some with braids, some wearing headscarves, some in wheelchairs. It's funny, um, you know, probably a year ago as we were working on this, I actually had the thought of, oh, you know, are we, you know, is this something we need? And it turns out, unfortunately, that it is. One exhibit surrounds you with four large video screens of people talking. It's like sitting down in the middle of a conversation, each speaker looking you directly in the eye. Being black and being Muslim, there's so many assumptions with both categories. They either assume you're a convert, you know. And there was some idea of like having shoes that you'd step into, but that doesn't do anything. And then we thought, well, maybe, you know, we could we, you know, what if you could eavesdrop, be like be a fly on the wall and sit in on with a group talking candidly about something that you would never be able to hear because they would be editing it because you were there. Like in this dialogue between parents who have disabilities talking about how people assumed they couldn't have kids. They assumed I just wasn't intimate with my wife. I think all my friends didn't think I could have sex and didn't, they thought that because I'm in the wheelchair I'm asexual and that I'm not, you know, I'm, how would you do it? Like, I couldn't, you know, imagine. During the reception, two of the people who appear in the videos bump into each other for the first time. Unity at the unity. Unity at the unity. They start comparing notes. Kayla Sharp's video describes what it's like being queer and trans. There was never like a place for me, for instance, to, to understand gender issues um, and disability issues from a younger age because those types of things aren't preserved generally in museums and in history books. Anne Cohen's in the video about parents with disabilities. She has muscular dystrophy. Just to see your community so well represented in a museum outside of San Francisco, Right, it's going to be seen by much broader community in years to come. It's just the unity of people coming together. I think if there's anything that we've realized from this last resurgency is that there are far more of us who stand up against that. Right next to that video display, there's a diner-style booth where you can play a card game. A white woman named Pinky Cockrell sits down to play with two African-American women, Akila Young and her mother, Felicia. Akila explains the rules. Basically, it's a version of two truths and a lie. So we pick two cards that are true about ourselves and one card that is false. And then we have to, as a group, guess which card is false about the individual okay. based off of okay. assumptions. Based on assumptions, yes. Her mom goes first. So I have three here. Mine is plan to be a politician, live in a foster home, uh, parents are divorced. I'm going to say a plan to be a politician is false. Uh, it's um, living in a foster home. So these two are correct. The politician one and um, the parents are divorced. Those are two ones. You just can't judge a book by the cover. Near the end of the exhibit, there's a stall where you can record your own story. An 11-year-old climbs onto the stool. Three, two, one. 
Hi, I'm Zoe, and I was bullied in the fifth grade. I've been bullied millions and millions of times, and it's really scared me. And just remember, you don't have to listen to what people say. Like if they say, you're ugly or you don't belong here. You can't just be a bystander. You have to do something. Burning Man starts Monday. The gathering began in the 80s on a beach in San Francisco, but now people converge in a desert outside Reno, Nevada. Almost 70,000 burners will travel there from all over the world, and many will bring bicycles. After it's over, most of the festival's structures and artworks will be ritually burned or packed up and taken away. But that's not always true of the bikes. Valley Public Radio's Carrie Klein has this story about how some Burning Man bicycles end up almost 400 miles away at a Central Valley Middle School. When 7th grader George Rocha heard the announcement, he raced to the school office as fast as he could. There was going to be a free bike giveaway. I needed a bike and I kind of want something to ride to school because like, I don't really have anything else. His last bike fell apart two years ago. Since then, he's had to walk to school. George got his bike, along with about 30 other students, at Haven Drive Middle School in the farm worker town of Arvin, outside Bakersfield. In the parking lot, kids whiz by on pink, black, and green single-speed cruisers. We're going to go ride riding to a friend's house, to a store, <laughs> to a school. Fine white dust from the desert still clings to handlebars and chains. Some bikes are pretty beat up. So mechanics from the nonprofit Bike Bakersfield are showing the kids how to fix up their new wheels. And these bikes have some unique problems. Adam Kaler pulls a string of lights out from between some rusty spokes. A lot of stripping of fur and psychedelic colored duct tape and things like that. Some are, some are better than others. They were, they were at Burning Man, so the desert kind of did a number on some of them. Burning Man is huge, five square miles, and cars aren't allowed. If you walk, um, it would take you forever to get anywhere. So bicycles are the mode of transportation. They're also a mode of self-expression, says Joey Adams. She's a five-time burner from Fresno. You get uh, furry bikes, you get lit up bikes. Um, I had a friend that put a, a bubble maker on the back of her bike. And yet, every year, between one and 2,000 bikes are left behind. It's an uncomfortable reality because one of the festival's guiding principles is leave no trace. In fact, trash is such a big deal, it has a special name, moop. Moop, <laughs> matter out of place. You do not leave trash. Uh, you take it with you. <laughs> you bring it in, you take it out. And uh, there is a huge community of burners that stay behind and they scour every little, you know, grain of sand for cigarette butts for anything that's left behind. A bike is a big piece of moop. One burner calls it unforgivable moopage. So why does it happen? Well, some burners are careless and overwhelmed and just abandon their bikes. Others are flying home and don't know what to do with them. And some simply lose their bikes in the chaos of 70,000 people trying to be everywhere at once. Burning Man has found ways to repurpose them. 
Some get recycled into the festival's own bike share pool, and others go to nonprofits. So that's how the bikes got to Arvin, to kids like George. The Dolores Huerta Foundation organized the giveaway. Elizabeth Martinez works on health issues for the foundation. In order for you to be healthy, you know, you got to eat healthy, you have to, you know, be active. And a lot of the times there's barriers, especially in our little cities. <laughs> Someone just popped a tire. <laughs> but Martinez says it's not just about promoting exercise. It's also about giving kids a new way to be independent and a new skill. We're teaching them how to fix their bikes on their own, and we're also um, motivating them to be physically active due to so much um, high diabetes, obesity, and other chronic illnesses um, here in our community. Overall, it seems like a win-win. Bikes getting recycled for a good cause in keeping with the burner principle of civic responsibility. And yet, some Burning Man representatives were reluctant to discuss it. They fear burners might leave even more bikes behind, with the assumption that volunteers will deal with them. Ideally, burners would leave bikes at designated drop points to make getting them to places like Arvin easier and cheaper. It would also keep a bike from becoming an unforgivable moop before it gets reincarnated as a seventh grader's favorite new possession. For The California Report, I'm Carrie Klein in Arvin. And now we're going to hear about two new albums out this month from California artists. The California Report's Susie Racho and our jazz critic Andrew Gilbert are here to tell us how the albums are really bridges between two generations of musical families. For you I sigh, for you dear only, why haven't you seen it? Doye from her new album, Daddy Said So. And this Los Angeles singer has made some albums before Andy, but they were more R&B than jazz. So why the move now to tackle standards? Well, you know, the title kind of gives the hint, Susie. She grew up in a house in Lagos, Nigeria, where her father loved jazz. And he died when she was quite young. And basically on his deathbed he sort of implored her please you know do something with this music so she's had this interesting journey was in london for a while moved to la studied you know got into the r&b scene but at some point she decided she wanted to fulfill that commitment and who she got playing on this i mean it, it's kind of an un, quite the undertaking to just like switch pretty much genres for styles. Well, she definitely, she paid some dues. She uh, would go to jam sessions at the World Stage in Lamert Park and, um, you know, worked for quite a few years. I mean, she lined up an amazing array of musicians. Each track is pretty much arranged by someone different. That piece we heard, Body and Soul, a classic, is um, arranged by Russell Malone, the great guitarist. She draws on a lot of great Los Angeles jazz talent here, also beyond, but people like Otmaro Ruiz, John Beasley, um, arranged these tracks, which are really well-known standards for the most part. Always quiet, always mad. It's a good thing 
So it sounds like it wasn't quite a tough transition for her from R&B to jazz, but were you surprised by anything on this record, or is it pretty straight ahead? It's pretty straight ahead. I mean, I got the sense this is her sort of diving into this world. I'd love to hear her, you know, defining herself more with some material that, you know, hasn't been interpreted by everyone. Daddy Said So is the new album from Doye. Up next, we've got a musical trio of brothers. I want to sit and rest my weary soul And then I take my Savior's hand I'll be satisfied then Oh, Lord I'll be satisfied Sit around, around the throne I'll be satisfied The Sons of the Soul Revivers are also following in their parents' footsteps. That's from their new record, Live at Rancho Nicasio. And they're a gospel ensemble from Vallejo. The brothers are James, Dwayne, and Walter Morgan Jr. But this album isn't their first live album. In fact, it's not even their first album. They've had several. But why haven't we heard anything about these guys in the kind of the more mainstream? Yeah, you know, Susie, they have been around a long time. I mean, going back to basically 1970 when they were young, they have been really popular, well-known in sort of the gospel world. You you listen to this music, you just hear this wellspring of American music, but not many groups are doing this anymore, and that's part of what makes this so much fun. If this was New Orleans or if this was somewhere else, like they would be much more of a, a household name. Absolutely. They just, there hasn't been sort of a forum to project their music nationally. You know, they've been really influential in the East Bay. Tony, Tony, Tony were huge fans and, you know, drew inspiration from them back in the 80s. Rafael Sadiq, you know, huge fan, but they just didn't break out of the church world. Now, this new album. Um, on the Little Village Foundation label, which is this fascinating project, sort of getting, um, recording, and documenting um, um, California roots music, will hopefully, you know, do the trick and, and get the word out about them. Have you been shook by, by the hand of God? Have you been shook by, by the hand of God? Yeah. Have you been shook by, by the hand of God? Have you been shook by? And it doesn't matter what faith you are, what exactly. you, you just can't help but be moved, you know, by the energy, by the rhythms, and the great harmonies. I mean, they, you know, there's nothing quite like family singing together. Live at Rancho Nicasio is the new album from the Sons of the Soul Revivers. And if you're one of those people who comes to Hardly Strictly Bluegrass every year, they're going to be making a big stage appearance there, and I would say don't miss it. Absolutely. The Little Village Foundation has had a stage the last couple of years, and they are just putting out some fantastic music. Andrew has more on the Sons of the Soul Revivers and Doye at CaliforniaReport.org. Thanks so much, Andy. Great to be with you, Susie.
Andrew Gilbert is the California Report's jazz and world music critic. From family jazz to family biz, our ongoing series profiles small family-owned companies in California. This one was founded 100 years ago by a Japanese immigrant who sold vegetable seeds to other Japanese Americans hungry for the tastes of home. The Kitazawa Seed Company almost went under several times. The family had to rebuild it after they were locked up in an internment camp during World War II. Decades later, the company was saved yet again by a different Japanese-American family. But the two families never really had a chance to talk about the company's historic legacy. That's what drove Maya Shiorama, a 60-year-old from Oakland, to finally visit Tom Kitazawa at his house in San Jose. He's 86, the last surviving son of the company's founder. Nice to meet you. Reporter Alyssa Jung-Perry brings us this story about a family business that defied the odds. Maya is an elegant and cheerful businesswoman. In Tom's living room, she brings out the latest catalog from the Kitazawa Seed Company. So, on the catalog, I wanted to ask you, who is on the cover of that? My dad would would not be dressed up. He's a, he's a working kind of guy. Yeah, but I do notice that this picture, he has a suit underneath yeah. the overalls. Yeah. Not just a suit, but a fedora, too, with overalls pulled over the whole thing. It's Tom's dad, Giju, standing in front of the Kitazawa Seed Company. He opened it in 1917 after arriving from Japan. Before San Jose became the tech giant that it is now, it was a small farming community, perfect for a seed merchant. Tom remembers hanging out in the warehouse as a kid. I used to play way, way back there because... They used to have these 100-pound sacks of seeds. That's when they sold seeds in 100-pound sacks. Sacks of Asian vegetable seeds, which were hard to find back then, like long, skinny Japanese eggplants, shisu leaves, which taste like a minty basil, and daikon, a mild radish. Before the war, two-thirds of Japanese Americans on the West Coast worked in agriculture or related businesses. That is, until they were sent to the internment camps. Tom remembers being in a camp in Montana. He was a teenager when the war ended. The seed company had closed, but the Kitazawas went back to San Jose anyway. Did your family, were they able to come back to their home, or did you lose your home? After the war, we did get back. We had to spend about a year in a temporary quarter. Tom says his dad was determined to reopen the seed company. He immediately started doing those kinds of things that he felt needed to be done so far as reviving his seed business. You know, making contacts with people and making contacts with the seed company, his suppliers. And that's where Maya comes in. She was born after the war, but she remembers the revival of the seed company. Both sets of her grandparents had farms outside of Fresno. Both families were fortunate to go back to it. Their neighbors took care of it. So Kitazawa is how I learn how to garden. But there's no way she could know the seeds she planted would one day connect her family with Tom's. After Tom's father died in 1963, ownership of Kitazawa passed through the family and eventually ended up in the hands of Tom's sister. One day, Maya's father said he hadn't received his regular delivery of Kitazawa seeds. So he asked me if I would drive down to San Jose and go get his seeds and see what is happening. 
That's how she found out Tom's sister was struggling to run the company alone. Tom had a career as a computer programmer and wasn't interested in selling seeds. And I asked her about if what would happen to the business, and she says, well, we're just going to close the doors. And so then I told her, well, that's a huge shame because Kitazawa Seed Company is a huge part of Japanese-American history. Maya bought the company in 2000 and moved it to Oakland. She created a website and expanded, offering new seeds from Vietnam, Thailand, and China. But she still measures and fills the seed packets the same way Tom did as a child, with metal scoops. The company's survival story is unusual. Other Japanese Americans were able to restart businesses after the camps, but they were in the minority. And those who did often had to close them decades later, as the economy changed or their children chose other careers. There are so many Japanese families that had to go through a very similar kind of thing, you know. Regardless of the hardships, we were very lucky. As Maya gets ready to leave, Tom asks her to send extra seed catalogs. He wants to save them for his young grandchildren so they will know and pass on the family's history. For the California Report, I'm Alyssa Jung-Perry in San Jose. We're going to end our show with another story about passing things down through generations. It's about a collector who eagerly seeks out mementos of history. Buttons, you know, pins that say stuff like vote for Kennedy or I love California. They're often just tossed after campaigns or vacations. But this guy has collected hundreds of thousands of them, as the California Report's Ryan Levy tells us. Okay, so far not seeing any buttons. It's a little smaller today, the show. The hunt is not starting well for Alan Rosenzweig. He's driven 20 minutes from his home in Sebastopol to a flea market in downtown Santa Rosa. He says a good day here can net him hundreds of new buttons. Let's see what this guy has. But it's overcast and cold and misting. There are only a few vendors set up, spread across the town square, displaying their wares on folding tables. And only one guy has buttons, Earl Gwynn. Hey, Earl. How are you? Good, how are you doing? Good. What do you got for me? Rosenzweig just about cleaned Gwyn out the week before. So all he has left are about a dozen buttons in a small wooden box. And Gwyn wants to sell those for more than the 10 cents a button that Rosenzweig is usually willing to spend. What would you offer me? I don't but there are some cool buttons here, and Rosenzweig doesn't like to leave a market empty-handed. 15 bucks. Okay. How's that? All right. Rosenzweig heads home to add his latest score to the mother load a separate building in his backyard big enough for a person to live in just for his buttons. Burlap sheets cover the walls from floor to ceiling. Buttons pinned everywhere. This this sheet is all presidential. Uh, Anti-war buttons, some college buttons down below there. And then here, these are uh, this glass showcases my oldest buttons. Rosenzweig started this collection 50 years ago when he was just 12 years old. He competed with a buddy to see who could get more. He had 70, and I had 50. Then I had about 130, and he had 80. And then he quit. Rosenzweig did not quit. Mostly advertising. There's a whole section of um, I heart buttons. You know, I heart New York. Decades later, uh, his collection has grown to nearly a quarter of a million buttons. Close to 200,000 of those are duplicates stashed away in an apartment in San Francisco where he owns a tour company. But that still leaves around 40,000 individual buttons. Those are the ones that fill this building. 
And as you can see, most of my buttons are in boxes on the floor that need to get worked on. And this is going to be a few years of work for sure to get these all up. And he's always looking for more. But I see people on the street and I'll ask them for their button. <laughs> and I do that quite often. Rosenzweig's collection has been with him for half a century through cross-country moves, the beginnings and ends of relationships, through everything. And it just keeps me, uh, keeps my, you know, my, my past, my history alive with me all the time. I mean, I come in here and I see my whole life. For the California Report, I'm Ryan Levy in Sebastopol. And just a last note about keeping history alive. That's what drives Ben Stern, a Holocaust survivor. California Report magazine listeners might remember our story. His Berkeley roommate is the granddaughter of Nazis. Now the 95-year-old says he wants to join some anti-hate demonstrations. I want to make a point as a Holocaust survivor. And the very few of us left at this age His parents and nine siblings did not survive the war. Stern says when he protests, he will see them marching in front of him in his mind. And that's the California Report magazine, a production of KQED Public Radio in San Francisco. Our director is Susie Racho. Our editor this week is Carrie Feibel. Our technical producer is Seal Muller, with help from engineers Jim Bennett, Danny Bringer, and Katie McMurrin. Special thanks this week to Not In Our Town. Our team includes Bianca Taylor, Eli Wirtshafter, Burt Johnson, Alex Helmick, Ethan Lindsay, Ingrid Becker, and Holly Kernan. I'm Sasha Coca. Thanks for listening. This is the California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. Support for the California Report comes from Barracuda Networks. Security, data protection, and application delivery solutions for physical networks and public cloud services. Learn more at barracuda.com products. The James Irvine Foundation, expanding economic and political opportunity for Californians who are working but struggling with poverty. More at irvine.org. And Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose family foundation advances the wiser use of energy and natural resources on a planet where everything is connected. On the web at theschmidt.org. Do you love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area? Its history, its people, its unique blend of cultures? Then you should check out The Bay Curious Book. I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on The Bay Curious Podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Right now, you can get The Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find a link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading! Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. 
That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. 